Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Welcome back to the Indie Clone Rose Podcast. This is Tom Lewis, and this is episode six, aka the Lance Stevenson episode. Lance uh, won the voting over a little bit of a tussle with uh, Corey Joseph, but actually Lance was a runaway winner in the voting on IndieCornrows.com. So um, as we get ready for episode seven, make sure you check out the post for this episode on the site where we'll have a poll for you to vote for uh, who should get the number seven honors. I think it may be another runaway, but we shall see. On today's show... Caitlin Cooper is going to join us in a minute, but uh, just wanted to touch base. It's been a while since we had a podcast and kind of hoping to get through about 10 games to see what the Pacers were all about, but really haven't been able to do that with all the injuries. So uh, this is a, a good time to take a break. The Pacers are in the midst of their fall break, uh, a rare four days off without a game. Um, as they head into a stretch where their next four games are at home. So uh, they're still uh, having a, a favorable schedule help them out here as they try to get healthy uh, and get back to action this weekend against Orlando on Saturday night. But the Pacers have stayed busy this week. On Wednesday, they had their annual Come to Our House Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, serving up to around 800 men, women, and children from uh, local shelters. It's an annual event uh, that the team puts on at this time of year. And the hosts this year were Victor Oladipo and Doug McDermott. In years past, we've seen Fab Young host and David West. So um, it's always a good thing for those guys to put their face on it. And I think uh, that honor gets them uh, the ability to serve turkey in the uh, buffet line. But uh, anyways, it's always a, a great event. The Pacers pull out all the stops. Uh, real nice event um, for those folks and uh, send them on their way with some gifts. And it's a good event. Um, so... That was on Wednesday. Then on Thursday, they had a big uh, City Edition uniform unveil out at uh, IMS Indianapolis Motor Speedway because they maintained the 500, Indy 500 theme with uh, the City Edition uniforms. Although this time around, they're white and with a little lighter blue and dark blue checker stripe. So um, it, it was a nice event out there. I think they were hoping to do a little racing around the track but uh weather did not allow that so it was mainly indoors but regardless uh they finally did unveil the city edition uniforms which um they'll be playing in later this month so that was what's been going on off the court on the court 
Pacers were back at practice today. Had some good injury news. So let's get into that and more with Caitlin Cooper. Okay, happy to welcome back to the pod. Indy Cornrows analyst extraordinaire, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how you doing? Good, good. Happy to be back. It's been a while. I know. How's your Pacers fall break going? Oh, quite actually pretty nice. <laughs> yeah. pretty, it's kind of nice to have a four-day break just to kind of collect your thoughts on where things are going, and hopefully the team can stop being a skeleton crew over the next couple days and get back to at least semi-health. Yeah, it actually kind of builds up a little bit of that uh, excitement about their return because, uh, as we know, so many guys have been in and out and mostly out of late that um, hopefully uh, most of them will be ready to go on Saturday when they uh, play Orlando again. Yeah, and it, it looks like now that Vucevic is going to be out for like a month, so at least they're catching a few teams that are also having injury problems, like Vucevic is going to be out, Chris Middleton was out, Kyrie Irving was out, so I mean, I think that's only fair. <laughs> I know. I, you know, it's kind of funny, just over the past couple of years, it seems like um, whenever a, a big player like that has an injury, the Pacers are right there ready to play him somehow. Um, I think that that works out for them somehow. Um, when we're, we're complaining about all the injuries, but then they catch these little breaks and, or, or they're playing a, a good team and, and one of their better players is out. Um, so obviously they've had a pretty, you know, easy schedule, maybe the easiest. I, I didn't realize yeah, there was so yeah, many. Yeah, uh, has it 30th as of this morning that they have the easiest schedule, that they've had the easiest schedule in terms of strength. Yeah, and they're pretty much locked in there. And I didn't realize there were so many strength of schedule rate, ratings out there. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I usually look at the ESPN one, and they've been pretty much locked at the bottom on that one. So, um, and really the, the only two top teams they played, obviously they were in no shape to play those teams. Um, Houston and uh, Milwaukee. So um, it'll be a while, I guess, before we get the real, real test. We've all kind of been hoping to see, but um, at this point, um, if, if they can get wins, uh, that'll be a good thing. You know, I think back to the to the uh, uh, before the season started, when we were talking about especially that that ten game stretch to start the season and how easy the schedule appeared. Um, which kind of seemed like a blessing with with the new team and all these guys coming together. But I think you were you were right on. You nailed it, saying, "Yeah, it's not really a blessing because if you're going to lose some games anyways, you don't really want to lose to those bad teams." And and those first three games, that all came true. I was like, "Ooh, Caitlin nailed that, nailed that one." It was kind of interesting too because I mean Sacramento got off to a really slow start too. Yep. And you know the Nets, the Kings, the Pacers, they've all dealt with injuries which is and they were all teams that were over whether it be in Japan or China or or India like the Pacers were. So I think I think there is some sort of an effect there. I know that I think Kevin Pelton had a pretty cool article. I didn't get to read the whole thing where he said that it didn't really impact a lot of teams in terms of like a broader start, but it, it seemed to at least this year. But I kind of wonder too like you say that, like the 0-3, I, I kind of write off somewhat to chemistry and like possible India lag and other things that were going on there. And then sure. they have that 7-1 and stretch, and there's no miles during any of it. So you really can't evaluate things from that point of view. And they're shuffling all these different starting lineups. And then here over these last two, I mean, they're, they're to the point where, you know, kudos to Aaron, but they're starting Aaron and, and a player who's been playing with the Mad Ants back and forth at point guard. So it's really hard to take a lot of that away. But And I give tons of respect to Nate McMillan for getting this team to stay afloat and, you know, toss out the cliche of next man up. That's definitely been a thing that's happened. 
But I've also found myself wondering a little bit about like the latent benefits of what they're getting night to night from the fact that they have to be an absolute nightmare for opponents to be planning for. Like this isn't the NFL where it's taking like a week to plan for a team, but at the same time, like how do opponents have any idea what lineups they're going to run out there and what your game planning around when half the time the Pacers are like a day before, oh, now this person is out and oh, now this person is out and we're recalling a player from Maine. Like, I think they are catching some players, some teams off guard because I don't remember which game it was. They were running the three TJ lineup and I, I remember I tweeted something along the lines of like, this lineup has way more space than any lineup with these three players should ever be allowed to have. <laughs> and I think some of that's just a product of teams just guarding how they normally would instead of being like, hey, three of these people either don't shoot threes or can't shoot threes at all and they could be packing the paint where there's just like these wide open driving lanes because I don't think teams are completely knowing what they're getting, but at the same time I guess the counterpoint there would be, you know, once they're healthy, how often are the Pacers actually going to be playing that lineup but at the same time I I think there has been some benefit to being a completely unpredictable opponent especially this early in the season when there's already such a little amount of film to draw from to look at a team that I that that interests me a little bit and they've also gotten I had this in my Houston article and I updated it today after you sent me the list it's interesting to me that I've been tracking what opponents have been shooting on wide open threes against them, and they've gotten very lucky on those. Mm-hmm. Like opponents are shooting 34.4% in total over these last 11 games, not counting, not even counting the first three. And there's only like six teams in the league that are shooting that poorly on wide open threes. So like the good news is they're limiting those looks, but opponents are also bricking most of them. Yeah. So I kind of wonder like, if some of that normalizes, where are you at? Like, I mean, miles would help in some respect because then you're not having to, you know, help as much on pick and rolls. You can stay more at home on shooters and you're, you know, getting more contested looks. But at the same time, like, they've definitely had a little bit of a luck factor on the three-point shooting. Yeah, just think if you took out the first half of that Orlando game, too. Because <laughs> they were just yeah. draining them there for a while. Um, yeah, I, I can imagine the... Uh, some Nets coaches were scrambling at halftime looking for some files on Naz, Mitchell Long. You know, as, as you're talking about these guys who aren't really known and then they're, they're out there playing hard and playing well. Other teams don't know what to do with them. But that's really, uh, you know, uh, one way they've, they've come around and, and been able to, to deal with this is, is, you know, that old thing of not necessarily just playing harder every night, but just, doing what they do more consistently. Um, I, I feel like the guys that have been out there have been really working hard on the defensive end. I know. Right. Uh, I think you can definitely take positives from that side of the floor. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I know, you know, the big win over Oklahoma City and over the Nets. And, you know, during the game, after the game, people say, oh, those teams are just horrible. But really, I mean, you look at, at those teams' results around those games and they weren't that bad, you know. So they did look horrible on those nights. I mean, um, I would want to place a big bet against the Nets after watching them play the Pacers the other night um, without Kyrie. Uh, but you know, you know, last night they ended up getting a, a ten point win um, and you know playing pretty well against a Charlotte team that's been been surprising as well. And and um, maybe they're coming back to earth a little bit. But regardless. That type of thing, that defense and, and the effort keeping them in games is something that they've um, kind of done historically. And it seems to be 
this group's coming together to do that. After, you know, those first three games, we weren't sure what we were going to have out of this crew. Um, I know uh, after that first game, uh, Malcolm Blackman, he was, you know, pretty upset and mentioned that the positive was that they were getting some adversity out of this because that's, you know, the way they would would uh, improve and develop as a team. And, man, they got a lot more adversity coming down the line with all the injuries, um, including his injury. Uh, but but he's right. I mean, I think it did, you know, bring them together, and they had to sink or swim, and, and they started swimming there for a while. So um, let me get on to kind of the news of the day real quick. Uh, Pacers did practice again today after they had their big come-to-our-house Thanksgiving dinner on Wednesday. Um, but today... Um, it looks like the injury report is getting a little lighter. Um, Malcolm Brogdon didn't practice. He's still out with the sore back, it appears. So um, that's not great. I was hoping you know, he would have enough rest by now to be back. But regardless, he's not. Um, Edmund Sumner still out. But apparently, according this is all according to um, J. Michael of the Indy Star. He tweeted out some updates. Edmund Sumner is, at least have his, has his hand out of a brace, um, but won't be ready to go. So, hey, small steps. Uh, but the good news is uh, Jeremy Lamb practice and expects to be back, uh, as does uh, T.J. McConnell. So that will help bolster the lineup a little bit. Um, and then I guess the biggest news was uh, Victor Oladipo practice. Uh, he's not back. That's not the big, big news, but uh, ran full-court scrimmage, you know, kind of no holds barred. It wasn't a controlled scrimmage or anything, and got out there and ran with everybody. So he did talk after practice, didn't say much, and also completely denied being thingamajig. So um, when is the next um, mass Singer? I don't know. Every single week that I think that it's going to be on with him, I'm always wrong. Like, I should actually probably look up what their bracket methods are. But, yeah, he wasn't on last night. So I would assume that next Wednesday would be his night again. But, oh, okay. So they don't they do not do it every episode. That's, that no. Sense, like, right? I, there's, like, some sort of bracket method that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But I guess I just always assumed it would be, like, in every other week. And then people are always like, yeah, he's not even on tonight. Like, simmer down. <laughs> But come on, yeah, the, the, the one thing about Oladipo, I did see one quote that I thought was encouraging where he said, I think they said that he was practicing most days. Like, I don't know what the definition of most is, but like sustained practices is kind of a big deal if he is going full court. Cause that tells me that his knee is responding fairly decently to going 94 feet. Like if he was having setbacks, then I don't think they would be saying that he's practicing most days. And if he, if he can go more regularly, even if it isn't a very heavy load, at least he's not like waking up and being like, wow, that, doesn't feel quite right you know like that type of a setback so at least that seems like a positive step in the right and i mean they wouldn't have had him go up to fort wayne if he wasn't going to be doing a pretty hearty practice with those guys either um i'm I'm sure he's I think that's a pretty good thing too. I mean, just yeah. because they're down to so many bodies, like why not be sending him up there on the off days and get in those types of reps versus those guys versus expecting more from the people who are already like down to nine, ten players. Exactly. exactly yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. Is he hasn't had any? At least we haven't heard of any. Or I mean, if he's practicing, he probably isn't having any setbacks because I'm sure the minute he says "ow," we're gonna have him sit down for a while. Um, so. Uh, but that was uh, that was like 
you know, good news. So much more good news than bad coming out of practice for once um, as they get ready to play. So hopefully tomorrow they'll have some kind of a workout that will uh, verify all these guys are still made it through practice. I mean, that's the same thing with Lamb and, and TJ. I mean, did, did they get through practice? And when they wake up in the morning, are they going to be ready to go as well? So um, it will be interesting to see who's available and then how McMillan is going to use them. Now, uh, the other thing we heard today from the Pacers, they unveiled the new City Edition uniform at uh, IMS. And um, it was supposed to be, a, I think, a bit more of uh, a big event with cars and everything, but it was raining. So, uh, Of course. Indy 500 cars and rain don't mix, so it was inside. But the uniforms look pretty cool. They're pretty much the same as the dark blue city uniforms, but these are white. And with a little more uh, lighter yellow and light blue mixed in, um, bringing back uh, colors from yesteryear. So uh, pretty cool. It can seem like they were pretty well received on social media. But um, um, I'm sure Pacers fans will jump on anything that they throw out. Anything that isn't gray, I'm here for. Oh, I like the racing inspiration, and I just am not a big fan of like gray uniforms for any team, unless you're the Spurs, and then you can have gray, I guess, because that's your main color. But yeah, you know, and uh, speaking of gray, Brooklyn, I thought it was odd oh yeah, that, Brooklyn that they were playing in the gray uniforms against the Pacers, and they had and the Pacers were wearing white. And then last night I was watching, and they did the same thing at home. They had the gray uniforms on, and Charlotte was wearing white. I'm like, wear something darker. Yeah, let the other team wear their dark uniforms. But. Oh, especially because their floor's that gray, so they're not yeah. exactly, like, neither team's going to pop off the floor very well there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, do I got color on here? So, uh, yeah. Anyway, so those, I believe, is it November 27th? I didn't write that down, but they're uh, yeah. yeah, that sounds to, right. To, uh, to unveil those for a game, so um, we'll be back to that. I think on Saturday they're doing the first Hickory game. For the last season, they're doing Hickory one more year, so I know that that has pretty much worn worn out its welcome. But um, yeah, they got deals, so they got to cash it in. And I do know that the Hickory merch sells a lot. So if that wasn't happening, then I'm sure they would find a way to get out of it as well. So we'll be right back after this break. Okay, we're back with Caitlin Cooper, and we are working our way through the Pacers' fall break here, getting ready for action on the court again. The Pacers have four consecutive home games next week, starting on Saturday against Orlando. Then we got Monday against Memphis, Wednesday night against Utah, and then the annual Friday night uh, light up the circle late tip against Atlanta on Friday night. So. Uh, always a always a fun night down there on that Friday night because you have the high school state football championships and then they light up the the tree on the circle and uh, and then everybody comes in in a festive mood and and it's usually usually a good crowd so um, playing the Hawks which um, young team that obviously is a little more entertaining than I thought they'd be this year because uh, those young guys are playing well and Trey Young always good to always good to watch so. Hopefully the Pacers will be maintaining their health throughout that homestand. And, um, you know, I want to look at kind of where they are right now after 14 games. I like to look at them after 10 games usually, but even after 14, as we mentioned earlier, it's not really anything we can take 
from this because of the, you know, initially they're getting started with uh, all the new faces and then they have so many injuries. Miles was out so long um, and they played well without him, but then other guys are out when he returns. Um, and even though it hasn't been real pleasant watching he and Sabonis together, um, the fact remains that um, it's still hard to draw any conclusions from that. After that rugged start, things have kind of settled as far as their, you know, kind of numbers. Their offensive efficiency is at 106.9 points per 100 possessions, which is uh, 18th in the league. These are numbers from the uh, NBA.com stats. And then their defensive efficiency is at 102.3, which is 5th in the league. Um, and their net rating is at 4.6, which is tied with Houston for 8th. So those are kind of numbers we're accustomed to seeing on both sides of the of the court with this team over the past few years. I, I've found it interesting that this new group has settled in and things have kind of leveled out to sort of what we're used to seeing, even though we're not quite sure what we're seeing yet. Right. Like... I mean, even like I even filtered that to the last 11 and the numbers are pretty similar from last really? year. Like even counting out those top, those first three kind of rough games. And like the only thing that's some of the shifts are even interesting because their free throw rate is, is significantly lower than last year. I mean, mm-hmm. over that 11th, they're dead last on free throw attempt to field goal attempt. And the only thing that's like a plus over those is they're taking a little bit better care of the ball, but I mean, they weren't sloppy in that regard last year and then they're they're hitting the offensive glass more which is something to kind of monitor because when they were starting miles and sabonis together there for those first three games like they they were getting giving up second chance points pretty readily they weren't rebounding great because sabonis was playing further away from the rim which was kind of taking a hit to his box out numbers but now that's that's back up over what it was last year but it's kind of interesting too because they're not they're not converting as many points off turnover, so it's kind of like what kind of sorcery is it that their offensive rating is what it is? But then this this number isn't updated. This was from last week where I basically was like, well, they're killing it on pull up twos. Like their number, they're they have the highest volume at that point in time, which was during the seven and one stretch of pull up twos of any team in the league, and they were like fourth in field goal percentage. Like right now, Warren and Brogdon are both shooting career highs on pull up twos, which I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that's unsustainable. I mean, those Warren's shot is is in the mid range. Brogdon's adjusted to that, which is a good thing because I think that'll help that teams aren't going to want to go under picks, which I think was somewhat of a threat based on some of the stuff he did in Milwaukee last year, but. You kind of look at sustainability, and I know that Michael V. Pina at SB Nation wrote a thing about T.J. Warren. He talked to him in Brooklyn about the mid-range game, and T.J. Warren wasn't too interested in talking about it. It was basically like, you know, this is annoying, and it's not rocket science. I'm going to play my game. And like, and I have to agree with Nate in some regards that with some of the injuries they've had, I don't think it necessarily makes sense to be getting into a firefight from three with like the three T.J.s. I don't know that they're going to really – stay afloat as well as they have done doing that but at the same time like that math is pretty dicey like I think if they either have to start getting more to the free throw line or they have to start getting more possessions like I don't see how you can be a relatively slow team not be taking a lot of threes and never getting to the free throw line like to me one of those things have to shift like because they're they're not a team either that's forcing a ton of turnovers. Like last year, that covered a lot of sins that they were forcing them and then converting those. And this year's team isn't quite doing that. Like they're getting to the same endpoint, but 
I think one of those things I have to shift, but then I have another number. Like, I don't know if you have anything off of that, but I, I do have one encouraging one that I think you had a topic where I could hit on that sure. later. Yes. <laughs> okay. So one of the encouraging ones off of all that, that even though they're kind of arriving at the same point in their offensive, defensive and net ratings, I think they're getting there a little bit differently. So the, the two positives that I can take away is that I looked up on synergy before we got on here and they're 11th in half court offense and they were 17th last year. So the fact that they're able to get into the half court and still be getting baskets, which what, with what I think are better overall offensive weapons. I mean, from Brogdon, some of the stuff that Warren's doing to get his own shot. I think that's, that's something that they can hang their hats on. And then overall, the, I monitored a lot what they did against switching defenses last year and their, their isolation numbers are much better right now than they were a year ago. I think Synergy has them at 1.143 points per possession. And last year that was like, or I mean, that's, that's Brogdon's individual number. They're at 0.92 as a team. And last year they were at 0.79. So that's a pretty significant jump. And Brogdon's been stupendous. I mean, if you're getting over a point per possession out of isolations, you're doing really well. And Brogdon's right there. TJ Warren's hovering at it. So they have more options now than they did a year ago that when, you know, opponents were switching and they just would always have to go to Victor Oladipo and be like, go get a shot. Now this year, right. if that happens, they have Brogdon or they have Warren. I mean, you even look at that Houston game the other night. They still cracked 100 points, even though Brogdon went down with a back injury. Jeremy Lamb wasn't playing and TJ Warren was in foul trouble and Houston was switching a lot. I mean, most of the game they were switching. So the fact that they were still able to get up over 100 points tells me that even though some of this math is looking pretty similar to last year, that they at least have some weapons that when you get into a playoff situation, they're not going to be quite so dependent on just raising effort to another level, which is really hard to do. I think mm-hmm. they have more people that are going to be able to go get you a basket and be able to get into the half court and still be able to score. Like those numbers are encouraging over the first 14. Yeah, I was, yeah, I, was I watched that Houston game on Saturday. I was in the car listening to it though. Um, and in the second half, I, I was having a hard time imagining how they were keeping pace as long as they did. I mean, obviously the, the bottom fell out at the end, but um, it was, you know, just thinking who they had on the floor and the circumstances, I was like, this is incredible. How are they doing this? So one thing that I want to get back to with Doma Sabonis, um, when he's been healthy, he's been uh, a monster out there for the Pacers. And for a while, I mean, he was doing the bulk of the rebounding. Now, um, that seems to have been a point of emphasis, and they've been rebounding a lot better in the past few games. I know uh, Dan Burke mentioned um, when they're playing some of these teams that are shooting so many threes, there's a ton of rebounds to be had because they're not, you know, even though they're shooting the volume, there's there's volume misses as well, and they they hadn't been uh, real strong on on the rebounds, and and it seems like that message has been getting through of late. But um, you know, Sabonis is you know right about eight, eighteen and a half points a game, and and just under uh, fourteen rebounds is is I think. 13.8 rebounds tied for second with uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo right now. Um, so he he definitely is is on his way to a monster productive year. Now a lot of that's been without Miles Turner in there. And yeah, the last couple of games when they've been on the court, especially the start games, it hasn't been real pleasant to the eye. Um, I know that Brooklyn game started out real clunky, but is there any hope with these two? Right. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, Sabonis, you bring up a good point because the 18, 13, and 3, like, I know that 
a lot of times there, people can be critical when you use those types of things as a filter because they seem pretty arbitrary. But the fact that he has three assists on there, like you're pretty much talking about a handful of people. Like that's Giannis, Drummond, Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns. So that's really good company for Sabonis. But yeah, if you, I looked, I anticipated this question. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, um, yeah, the Sabonis turnover, Turner net rating numbers, he, they're at minus 1.4 and 130 minutes played. So obviously they're still, I mean, that's not a great stat. I mean, I, I think maybe the one thing you hang your hat on there a little bit is the first three games were kind of not great overall. And now Miles is kind of getting his rhythm back from an ankle. But a lot of times the spacing, you mentioned that Brooklyn game yeah. and something to watch for Sabonis. Like the very first possession, the Pacers love to run their little flex set for Sabonis to get a post-touch right away. Mm-hmm. And lately what I've been noticing is that teams are kind of anticipating that as the first possession. And instead of sending like, you know, it would have been Aaron Holiday, but in a lot of cases it's Brogdon. So let's pretend it's Brogdon. Instead of sending his defender as the digger to go double, they're bringing a defender over from the weak side so that the other two can just zone up that area and double Sabonis. So Miles is at the top of the key over there. And while Sabonis is is dribbling and trying to make his post move, he goes to the middle of the floor, clear into the lane, like he's going to set a back screen for Aaron Holiday to cut away like on a split cut but at that point he's waited way too long Sabonis has to throw the ball out and it ends up getting intercepted by Brooklyn because there's two defenders over there on the weak side like that's the type of stuff that Miles still needs to work on I think that there have been some bright spots for him like he's rolling more often now I've seen him slip some screens he's taken a few shots down in the post against the switch there hasn't been a lot of opportunity for him to do that like you can kind of see the switch is hovering to want to turn on a bit but it still just isn't all the way there where like even with Goga even though he's a rookie like I like his shooting but I also just really like his spacing he has a really good natural feel for where he needs to stand off of Sabonis on the offensive end of the floor and then on the defensive end they're just like killing it on the glass and he's another big body in the paint and they're because of some of the combinations that have been out there they're not getting hurt quite as bad by stretch fours whenever the two of them are on the floor versus against starters when Miles and Sabonis tend to be but the Sabonis Goga minutes have been really strong those are plus 27 and only 38 minutes played but i mean the stuff for Miles right now doesn't look super rosy independently cuz like when when neither of the other two centers are on the floor the Pacers are at minus 5.5 in net rating when versus for Sabonis it's plus 9 so I wonder if Miles is feeling a little bit of pressure there. I mean, I I know he said in one comment, I'm sure he's happy that the team played well without him, but at the same time, like, they played well without him. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's kind of like Sabonis has been so strong and and everything can run through him, you know, especially when, when they get bribed him out there. It's almost like Turner has to play a, a lesser role for it to be successful. Um, and I don't know if that's, going to work out in the long term. I know in that first quarter, um, I was thinking, because it was so hard for them to get buckets, and and I was thinking, oh, well, they should have started McDermott instead of Justin Holiday, and then they could have had that shooter. And then it, it hit me. I'm like, actually, they should have started McDermott instead of Miles. And that did you have the floor. Um, and they, they really would have been able to spread them out. But I, I kind of felt like maybe that is a better role for him because he has been so inconsistent over his career so far um, if if they're not relying on him every night. And when he has it going, he has it going. But, um, yeah, but we'll, we'll leave it at sample size it for now. But um, I guess we're going to start getting uh, a full dose of it here uh, this week. So hopefully uh, 
they'll have some some uh, tricks that they've been working on to to make things work out better for those two. One other thing on the Sabonis side that I think is interesting when I brought up that flex play, I looked it up because I had one of the winners and losers versus Houston about Sabonis versus double teams, and he was kind of uncharacteristically frazzled in that game whenever they were sending that opponent, that player from the opposite side, because he doesn't have that easy kick out. I looked it up on Synergy, and when he sees a double team this year, he's turned it over on 25% of his possessions, which... That isn't a huge sample size, a number of possessions. He's not getting doubled a ton, but you have to imagine if teams yeah, have they, seen how much <laughs> like havoc he's wreaking in the paint, that eventually they're going to be like, yeah, we're going to start sending more double teams there, and then what are the Pacers doing about it? Because to me, I think they need to start doing a little bit more with split cuts and a little bit faster because it's not, like I said, it's not just you occupying the digger. They're sending somebody clear from the other side of the floor to come and double him. So what are, I think there's going to have to be an answer there it kind of reminds me of a few years ago whenever it was like okay victor's struggling a little bit against the hedge what's your answer going to be for this down the road i would monitor how sabonis is handling those double teams because i imagine he's going to start seeing more of them and if you look at a player like like just as for a point of reference for people who are listening like Embiid turns it over on about 15 percent of his possessions and anthony davis is lower than that they're getting doubled more often but obviously their rate of turnover is a lot lower there mm-hmm. so and especially right now when they don't have like a Victor Oladipo or other shooters out there and they are taking a very low volume of threes, which that would create a higher volume, but they don't have a lot of pure shooters right now outside of like Doug McDermott and Holiday of, of what are they going to do about that moving forward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that, especially, you know, those teams are going to look at those numbers as well, but um, there's, there's the video evidence of him uh, struggling with that double team. So uh, hopefully that was part of, the uh, game plan this week as they get ready to move on. Um, one other little combo we have now. It probably won't come up until Brogdon is back, obviously, but uh, Aaron Holiday has started playing quite well um, in Brogdon's ab- absence with uh, more minutes on the floor. Uh, his last five games, he's starting, I think he started his last seven, but the last five games, he's averaging 15.6 assists. Almost four rebounds. He's shooting over well over forty percent from three, which is all you want from that guy. I mean, if um, he can get get those threes off, um, he's a volume shooter. That um, if he can keep that rate up, is is going to be a bonus no matter what role he's playing. Um, but the last few games have been without um, last couple of games been without uh, T.J. McConnell, um, so that's provided him even more minutes and. Eventually, he's going to go back to the bench, and, you know, you talk about Turner Sabonis. I mean, I think among uh, Pacers Twitter, Pacers commenters on any corners everywhere is is who who should play the reserve role, T.J. McConnell or, or Aaron Holiday. And McConnell kind of earned his minutes, and Holiday wasn't playing as well, but now Holiday's playing better. And you can see he's obviously a more dynamic player, um, but can he remain consistent enough to kind of take that second point guard role, or is he just going to continue to be a kind of a, a combo guard off the off the bench and maybe sometimes play more with, with McConnell? Right. I, I mean, I thought that the game against Brooklyn was pretty informative because he was actually starting at point, Brogdon's out, so he's getting to run the offense more, and and 
he shoots on a higher percentage of his touches, obviously, than yeah. TJ and even Malcolm Brogdon. So in that game is, but his touches were about double what they normally are. So that percentage didn't, didn't tick up, even though he had a much higher volume of touches, which I thought was encouraging. And, and over those five games that you mentioned, I looked it up, like for the whole season, he hasn't been shooting stupendously well inside of five feet or the restricted area, but over the last five, that's bumped up back closer to what it was last year. Like for the season so far, he's shooting 38.7% inside of five feet, which is really not good. And I think some of that goes back to him pressing when he comes into the games and really his shot selection isn't great. And he takes shots against collapsed defenses when maybe he needs to move the ball. And against Brooklyn, like even just ignoring that his numbers were really good overall, you could see a couple plays where like he came off a double ball screen, miles rolled, which, you know, that's another boon right there. Miles rolled (laughs) and he found him and, Miles got the and one, hits a free throw. Like that's not a play that Aaron readily makes. A lot of times when he comes off that, he's using, he wants to use that as a runway to get to the basket or like they'll run a play where, you know, Doug McDermott or his brother will come and set like a ghost screen for him and then they launch into pick and roll. And again, he found the roller there. So like the fact that he's even making those reads is a step up in improvement from where he was a couple weeks ago. And I think some of that comes with just having greater opportunity and the fact that there isn't really other options and that the, they kind of have to stick with him and play through the highs and the lows a little bit. He's kind of found a little bit of more of a happy middle than what we were even seeing and what that was the disastrous summer league. But like you talk about the TJ McConnell question, I think you almost have to look ahead a little bit if you're the Pacers and ask yourself, like when Victor comes back and obviously they don't have Mm -hmm. a crystal ball to know that what Victor's going to look like. But when Victor comes back, what do they imagine themselves wanting to do like in a playoff series with Victor and Malcolm? Are they going to want to maximize as much time as they possibly can with both of them on the floor? Or are they going to want to go, we don't want to have any minutes without one or the other of them on the floor. Because if they want to maximize minutes with both of them on the floor, then I think TJ McConnell makes sense as your backup point card because I just trust him to make and be more patient and reads as the overall reserve point guard. But if they want to split up those minutes, then I think I would lean towards Aaron Holiday because I would rather have Aaron Holiday shooting out there with Malcolm or with Victor in a pairing than I would rather have TJ's defender roaming clear off of him and sending extra pressure to either one of them so it's kind of good that they have both options but how do you develop both of them at the same time to get to that place is a whole other question especially when you have Edmund Sumner too I mean eventually Jeremy Land's going to slide to the bench and then you have three of those people so hopefully Nate McMillan kind of takes it by like a game by game approach you know if you have a bigger lineup maybe you give Edmund Sumner some run if you have a smaller lineup play them together and see how it goes I mean the the McConnell Sumner minutes have been very very bad so I don't think you really need to take a closer look at that but I mean TJ's been has far exceeded my expectations I mean like in that Houston game they run a nice little floppy play where you know Holiday and and McDermott give and get a screen and they come around and he knew right off the bat that they were going to, that Houston was going to switch that and that TJ could release. And he just threaded the pass right to TJ leaf for off the slip. There's a lot of times where you can tell he's like chomping at the bit, like throw me the ball because I know I can find a cutter with the very next pass. And I don't really think that's something that Aaron's quite there ready to make yet. But then I guess the argument against that would be, how's he going to get there if he doesn't get playing time? So yeah. I mean, Nate Millen, I don't envy. He has some tough yeah. decisions. That's true. I almost even forgot about Sumner in that mix, too, because um, obviously when Victor's back and Lamb's healthy, those reserve minutes are going to be sparse for those guys. But um, uh, you bring up a good point here on our 
question on the Oladipo and Brogdon combo. I know um, when you first said that, I'm like, oh, I'd rather have one or the other out there more as opposed mm-hmm. to having them out there together. You know, that's just my first thought about it. But um, um, it, obviously we haven't seen it, <laughs> seen it work. It just seems like right. it'd be nice to have one of those guys out there all the time. Um, but when they are together, you wrote a piece, uh, was it yesterday, um, about, you know, some ways that the Pacers could utilize those two guys. Can you share a little bit about that? Oh, yeah. So basically before Naz got <laughs> recalled, I didn't expect that to happen, but I had been <laughs> watching some of the Mad Ants games because I like to do that whenever the Pacers have guys up there. I try to tune into as many of them as I can. Mm-hmm. and. I noticed, hey, you know, that's a play that they run, run, the Pacers run all the time. A lot of teams around the league run it, but the Pacers run it a lot in transition for Doug McDermott or Justin Holiday. Basically what it is, is they just come down, Sabonis sets a quick screen away from the ball, and Doug McDermott cuts right in front of it, and he'll get a quick hitter, a three out of it, and most of the time it's open, because there's not a really good place to send help, and the Mad Ants have basically used that set to balance the skills of Walter Lemon Jr. and Naz as two point guards that can attack and kind of steer the same ship at the same time based on where those reads are going and and they use Traven Thibodeau but I mean Sabonis like just imagining Sabonis as the screener and kind of toggling between those two with with Victor and and Malcolm up there there's just so many different reads that you can get out of it I mean sometimes they'll go and if all the attention's like if, if Malcolm's the cutter coming up over the screen if all the tension's there then Walter Lemon Jr. just attacks the seam and goes away from the play. Or if it's the other way, sometimes Malcolm will go, or, you know, Naz, I should say. Malcolm, Naz in the role of Malcolm, <laughs> will just launch back into a rescreen with who would be Sabonis. Or, you know, sometimes even if they deny that look completely, they'll go with some blind pig action with a quick back cut. Like, just tons of different looks, and that's what they run a lot of the time. And the results haven't been great for the Mad Ants right now, just because Walter Lemon Jr. is shooting, like, 33% from the field. He's having a rough start to the season. And they're 0 and 4 so far, but um, they they've definitely had to make some adjustments with how they're going to balance having both of those guys after the system was completely built around Walter Lemon two years ago. And there's there's a lot of similarities between both of those players and and Victor and Malcolm, even though it's not a complete you know natural overlay. Obviously, that the two at the Pacers are just a little bit better, <laughs> but but. Um, yeah, check that one out if people are listening and you can look. I mean, I know a lot of people don't always love to see stuff on the Mad Ants, but in this case, I think the Pacers and the Mad Ants share a lot of the same offensive tactics. And now, especially that Victor's up there getting some run in and running through some of their sets, I think that's definitely something that the Pacers can incorporate and get really quick early offense out of, which I know Nate McMillan would like to ideally do. They like to attack early or late, and that's one way that they could do it while keeping both of them very much involved rather than having to stash one of them off in a corner while the other one's kind of dominating the ball. And I think you definitely want to do that for Malcolm with the way, you know, he's doing so much as an actual point guard with all this stuff, dry, all of his drives that you don't want to limit him to just playing an off-ball role once Victor returns to action. So yeah. that was the inspiration for that one. It's a, it's a great piece on uh, IndyCornos.com. Check it out. Of course, it has much more detail, videos. It is a, uh, a great appetizer for thinking ahead to when Brogdon and Oladipo will actually play together. So, you know. We, That'll be the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Kevin Pritchard talks about kind of the three seasons of playing before Vic comes back and then working Vic in until he's playing at a high level and then 
all systems go uh, for the playoffs. Um, but if, I feel like this, this first part has already been broken into a couple different parts with all the injuries. Yeah. But uh, we're looking forward to to continuing to build on that on that season and and uh, get get to where the teams go on that uh, full throttle. So, Kaylin, thanks again for uh, joining us tonight. Uh, I think we got through everything. So, you got anything else? No, no, I think I'm good. As long as people understood my long babbling answers, then <laughs> then we're good. <laughs> of course, and of course, make sure you go read your stuff at Indy Cornrows. Um, so that's all for tonight. Thanks for listening.